Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch, committed to bringing higher finance to lower carbon. Named the most innovative investment bank for climate change and sustainability by The Banker. That's the power of global connections. Bank of America North America, member FDIC. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. He is Bill Miller, um, the legendary mutual fund manager uh, at Leg Mason. He most famously beat the S&P 500 for 15 consecutive years. It, it, the math behind that is just mind-boggling. It, it's... Something that couldn't possibly have been a random act. Michael Mobison discusses this in great detail and, and talks about the skill level. He very famously blew up in the financial crisis, meaning the, the fund crashed and burned along with everything else. And people kind of wrote him off as having, all right, that guy's done. We'll never hear from him again. Um, and over the past five years... He's again crushing the the market, beating uh, the S and P five hundred by four hundred base points a year, uh, consistently being in the top handful of of funds every year. He is really a fascinating guy, super intelligent, very thoughtful about things like valuation. He is incredibly circumspect about his experiences uh, during the financial crisis and talks quite with great humility and quite bluntly about what he got wrong during the crisis. Uh, I always find that refreshing when someone um, has a bad run and instead of saying, oh, it was the Fed's fault or this person's fault or what have you, basically owns it and says, yeah, I failed to understand the difference between this recession and that recession. Here's what I learned. Here's what I wish I would have known during the crisis. it, it, It was just an absolutely fascinating conversation. If you're at all interested in asset management, running a mutual fund, running a portfolio, how to be a value investor, how to come up with a unique value add that allows you to beat the market, and perhaps more interestingly, Bill Miller's criticism on the failure of active management being that so many managers are ex- are suffering from career risk and so they become closet indexers. He has in great detail described why the move towards passive investing is actually a rational response from the investing community, from the public. Hey, why are you paying a lot of money for an active manager who is essentially a closet indexer? He's essentially not only similar to the index, but his portfolio is going to be wholly unable to beat the market because it's essentially a closet index plus a high fee get out of that and either go to an active manager who has a chance to beat the market or just index and he's pretty blunt hey most people are better off indexing so i i've just found this to be an absolutely fascinating conversation and i think you will as well so with no further ado my conversation with bill miller This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is a legend. His name is Bill Miller. He is the former chairman and chief investment officer at Leg Mason, where he ran 
uh, the Leg Mason Capital Management Value Trust for many years. Uh, he was named by Morningstar in 1999 the fund manager of the decade. Uh, Bill Miller beat the S&P 500 from 1991 through 2015, 15 consecutive years. It's a feat essentially unprecedented in, in mutual fund management. Since then, he's been running uh, the Leg Mason Opportunity Trust and just launched, or that's really not the right word for it, LMM is the new fund that a new firm that he's in charge of. Uh, the Leg Mason Opportunity Trust Fund has beaten 96% of its peers over the last five years and has outpaced the S&P 500 by 2% annually. Bill Miller, welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks, Barry. Nice to be here. So, so that's uh, quite an introduction. What you did uh, with the fund is really legendary. We're going to get into the streak in a little bit, but let's talk about your approach. Is it fair to call you both a value investor and a contrarian? I would say, yeah, I'd, I'd say that, that what I am is a, is a long-term oriented value investor with a contrarian overlay. That, that's, that's a pretty fair description. So let's talk about your process. How do you begin the process? How do you approach selecting stocks? Well, what I'm trying to do, what we're trying to do, the team's trying to do, is find companies that trade at large discounts to what we call intrinsic business value. Mm -hmm. And intrinsic business value is the present value of the future free cash flows of the business. And then we're also looking for companies where you're starting out with low expectations, where people don't where people don't believe that the future looks very bright or that there's a lot of controversy. And then with that, the key we use every valuation technique known to man, but the key the, the key one that we're always starting with is free cash flow yield. So just under a checkbook accounting approach like you have your own checkbook. Right. We want we want companies that ideally will start out with a 10% free cash flow yield. And that, that and that that's just that's there's there's nothing magic about that. That's just that's just a, heur, a heuristic that we've developed over the years. It, t it tends to work, but higher is always better as long as if those free cash flows are sustainable. How how does this differ from classic Graham and Dodd value investing? Well, the great the classic Graham and Dodd approach was was a. Um, an approach that focused mainly on accounting metrics, and so PE, price to book, price to cash flow, those kinds of those kinds of things. And toward the end of his life, Ben Graham made a point that those things no longer work because they became replicable, and they were they then they then did not they didn't identify companies that were mispriced. They tended to identify companies if the valuation statistics were were uh, superficially attractive. Those were typically companies that had lower returns on capital. And then, unless those returns on capital changed, those low, those low accounting metrics didn't give you outperformance. How important are are the growth metrics? For a while, GARP was quite the thing in the '90s. Is, is growth at a reasonable price significant? Do you do you bring growth into your metrics? Yeah, absolutely. We're, it's not so much growth at a, at a, a you know at a reasonable price so much as it is that growth is an input to the calculation of value. And so companies that grow faster, other things equal, assuming they're earning above the cost of capital, are more valuable than companies that grow more slowly. The cash flows will cash flows will compound more quickly. How do you balance the current fundamental picture of of a company? with what you hope the future prospects are going to be? How, how can you judge how the business will, will grow and develop? Well, there, there's a, there are many, many ways to, to attack that, that issue. One of the things that we try and do, if, if the economy is, is in recession, for example, or the economy is in a boom, we will tend to normalize that. So if, if, if the economy is growing more rapidly than normal, 
when we're looking at a company, we will bring it back to a normal growth rate. If the company, we're also looking at the company economics, and those are typically a function of the industry economics. Mm-hmm. So you, you start out with industry economics, you look at company economics, quality of the assets, quality of the management. All of those kinds of things go into go into trying to figure out what the company is going to, going to do. And you know that a company like General Motors, for example, uh, is going to be a company that's a very mature, slow growth company operating in an industry that is, has global overcapacity, and that's under it's under a lot of technological threats. So that that all goes into thinking about a company like that. Amazon's our largest position. That's a completely different, a completely different uh, exercise because Amazon is a completely dominant company and with, with an enormous total addressable market and incredible competitive advantages. So it's it's going to have a growth has a growth rate of you know right now roughly thirty percent a year, which is unheard of in a company of a hundred billion dollars of revenues. How do you deal with something? And let's stay with Amazon, where there really isn't a whole lot in the way of profits. But they're certainly taking market share, and they're certainly growing revenue like wildfire. It, it comes down to again the issue of, of, of accounting-based metrics versus economic metrics. So w- with with Amazon, the, the, their natural business is one that has a marginal return on capital of triple digits. And when people say Amazon doesn't make any money or doesn't make much money, what well, they're really looking, I think, at the wrong wrong sort of metrics because everything below the gross profit line at Amazon they consider an investment. Mm-hmm. So some of those investments are capitalized, some of those investments are are, are expense. But Amazon, if you if you begin to if you do some a little bit of math on it, a little bit of uh, statistics, what you'll see is that Amazon's share price historically it isn't correlated with profit growth, it isn't correlated with cash flow growth, it's correlated with gro- with the growth of gross profit dollars. And so the, the faster the growth rate of gross profit dollars, namely what they have to invest, the the higher the valuation that the company has been able to attain. Yeah, that makes some sense. So let's talk a little bit about size. Your fund started at $750 million back in 1990, and it didn't take very long. 15 years later, it was over $20 billion. How does that change in size affect your ability to to be nimble? It, it really didn't. And and what's interesting about that is that while the fund got to 20, 20 or $25 billion, I think, at the peak, we had another $50 billion of institutional assets to go along with it. So the, the, the overall money under management in that one strategy at the peak was around $75 billion. And what, what, we, what we observed, anyway, uh, is sort of ironically, is that as the assets got larger, the performance got better. Huh. And, that's and, a, that's and, amazing. And uh, – and then, of course, what happens is that the, the, the assets always peak with the peaking of performance because if the performance kept up, the assets would keep going up. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Bill Miller. He was with Leg Mason for the longest time before uh, he took himself private. Is that a fair way to say it? L- LMM is now... 100% owned by yourself? It, it will be, yeah. It's, it's currently 50% owned by Leg Mason and 50 by me, but I have a deal to buy them out, which should close uh, in the spring of 2017. So let's talk about your streak. You ran the Leg Mason Value Trust for f- from 91 through 2015. Um, you actually ran it longer than that, but in the middle of that was a 15-year streak of beating the market every year consecutively. There's never been anything like that before, and there probably never will be since. So um, what's the secret? Uh, luck. <laughs> There's a lot of luck into it. Um, Hold on. Let me write that down. Yes. Luck. <laughs> but in all seriousness, it can't just be luck. It's got to be some combination of 
some skill, some luck, some right guy, right place sort of thing. What, yeah, I, what's yeah, the mix? Say, I mean, Stephen Jay Gould wrote a wrote a piece on on streaks, the late late paleontologist, mm-hmm. and he noted that that every streak he went through all the different sports streaks and stuff like that. I was going to say paleontologist that, slash baseball fan, right? Yeah, and and he noted that that every streak is a, some combination of skill and luck, mm-hmm. depending on the length of it and how it's achieved and stuff like that. I'd say the the thing that contributed to it probably the most was a pivot that we made in 1995. Mm-hmm. So five or six years into it um, when uh, when technology stocks got very cheap because people were worried about a recession. Right. And you may or may not remember that Jeff Vinnick ran the Magellan Fund at that time and it raised a lot of cash because the Fed had been tightening. Right. 94, and, we, there were some issues in yeah, the economy. People yeah, got nervous. Exactly. Uh, so what, what happened then was that you could buy companies like Dell, which is a relatively new company at the time, at five times earnings. Wow. You could buy Nokia at six times earnings because people were worried. And they also mistaken, they didn't, they didn't properly analyze those businesses. So Dell was growing 35% a year, trading five times earnings. We, so we bought Dell then, we bought Nokia, we bought America Online, another one that, that uh, went up 50 times after we bought it. So, let- so, when, so it, what we did was, f- unusual for value investors, is we we got into technology at that time. And most value investors following Warren Buffett's kind of dictum that he didn't own technology because he didn't understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, we, through some work that we'd done with the Santa Fe Institute, uh, came to understand the economics of technology were different from what people traditionally believed and it was much more predictable than people believed. So let's let's talk about AOL for a moment since since you mentioned them. Uh, that was a, a 50 bagger that went up 50x. In the real world, how do you hold on to something that goes up 5x, 10x? Investors are notorious for for quote unquote ringing the bell too soon. How do you withstand the ups and downs of a stock like that 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 was somewhat volatile and ride it Till it's a fifty bagger. Yeah, it's interesting. We, we, we part of the part of the thing is you have to try and understand the potential of the company. Je- General Motors is not going to be a fifty bagger, right? General mm-hmm. Motors is a mature company. AOL was a very new company, a small company in a very in a very big new area. So it had a, it had a lot of potential. We didn't know it was going to go up at all, but but it certainly had the potential to do so. And uh, and so that's really trying to understand what the company's possibilities are, what the total addressable market for the business is. And the other the other part of it is that that when you get it, when it becomes a big winner like that and it it uh, it becomes a bigger and bigger part of the portfolio, part of what happens is that just from a from a portfolio management technique, it it becomes riskier in the sense of it has a greater and greater impact on the portfolio, and that becomes a question of how you size the position. Well, that that leads to another question: uh, is, Do you ever have an upper capacity? Nothing can be more than ten percent of the portfolio, or or some line in the sand, or what do you do with there? There was there is no line in the sand. We we actually part of the reason that that streak went on, and because and part of the reason I was manager of the decade was that with AOL and with Dell, for example, both were fifty baggers for us. But we they they got to be uh, as much as 25 percent of the portfolio, which was which each had, each wow. which had never happened before. Fannie Mae was fourteen, I think, at the peak, uh-huh. and then we we fortunately were able to cut them cut them back and get them actually out of the portfolio end of nineteen ninety nine. That was very unusual. Probably the Biggest, the, the biggest we would go and we've been since then is, I think, I think a- Amazon got to 12 or so uh, earlier uh, or late last year. So you, you start accumulating AOL and Dell mid-90s. It's an incredible five-year run for technology. What, other than the sheer size in the portfolio, what are you doing in 1999 to cull those back? Is it just those two because of their outsize um, position in the portfolio? Or are you looking at the macro environment? Are you looking at technology no longer as cheap? What's the thought process like in 99 and 2000 when you're, when you're 
selling two giant winners, capital gains and all. We we went from thirty eight percent of the portfolio, I think, in the in the beginning of two thousand in tech, to no percent by the end of the first quarter, and the reason for that was that the the market had been going up twenty five percent a year, right? And corporate earnings had been growing very rapidly, and valuations got way out of whack. So back back at that time, as you may recall, you had you had uh, Microsoft was sixty or seventy times, Cisco right. was that, uh, GE was fifty times, Home Depot was sixty times. So the valuations were just way 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 out of whack for mega mega cap and for technology, and part of our thought as we looked at companies like Dell and AOL. It wasn't so much that the total market value of those businesses was way out of whack with, with the potential there, but what we did know was it wasn't going to be linear. There would be some interruption there, and when that interruption came, the co- the companies would get killed. So what? And then the Fed was tightening at that time. Right. And I think the the the, the real the real trigger uh, for me in that environment that really kind of put paid to the whole thing was uh, there's a two it was twofold. Number one was there was a headline in the New York Times in March of of uh, 2000 about Julian Robertson. It's called the it's called the end of the game or the end of the end of an era, and it talked about how value investing was dead, right? And about Julian Robertson had to had to close up shop, and at Buffett, of course, had hadn't had done poorly for several. Underperformed, right? Yeah, done done poorly, and then the, the, so that was kind of one trigger that everybody had thought that 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 was dead, and the second one, maybe more more important one, one was that from from the spring of 1999 to the spring of 2000, the first quarter of 99 to the first quarter of 2000, the Nasdaq was up a hundred percent and the Dow was down. And again, that bifurcation was that bifurcation was so large and the valuation discrepancy was so large. And I'd say that the the final part of that whole thing was at the end of the first quarter in in two thousand, uh something like seven sixty five percent or seventy percent of active managers beat the market in that quarter. Mm-hmm. And it, which is an extraordinarily high Huge percentage. Number. And and at the same time there were only two sectors of the 10 or 11 S&P sectors that beat the market, utilities mm-hmm. and tech. So what that told me, and nobody was owning utilities, right? right? So what that told me was everybody was crowded into tech. That, that's, they were, everybody's overweight tech. There's nothing more to go in that. And again, that couple of valuations said it's time to go the other way. That, that's quite fascinating. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Bill Miller. He is the former chairman and chief investment officer of Leg Mason, perhaps best known for really an unproducible streak, beating the S&P 500 15 consecutive years when he was running the Leg Mason Value Trust Fund. Uh, Morningstar named him the manager of the decade in 1999. Let's talk about the new, um, for lack of a better word, the new shop, LMM. Tell us a little bit about the firm and its history. Uh, LMM was created in 1999 uh, when we started the, in ni- 1990. We started the Leg Mason Opportunity Trust, and it was created as a joint venture between myself and Leg Mason. And it was the only Leg Mason subsidiary that wasn't 100% owned by Leg Mason at the time. And the idea was that, that Leg Mason and I would be partners in that in that particular fund, uh, whether it, whether it did well or not. And so that was run coextensively. LMM was run coextensively with Leg Mason Capital Management, which I was the, the chairman of. And then in 2000, and I want to say 2012 mm-hmm. or so, um, Leg Mason decided to combine 
uh, my subsidiary, like Mason Capital Management, with ClearBridge, which is a New York-based uh, equity shop. I did not think that was a particularly good idea. And so what I was able to do, because, because I had operational control of LMM, was to extract that from that transaction and set it up as a separate as a separate entity and a separate business. But I had to go then go restaff it from the standpoint of, of trading and reporting and mm-hmm. production and compliance and all that all that kind of stuff. That was back in ninety nine no, or that, when? no that was in two thousand twelve. Okay. So it was so run as a joint venture. Yeah, run as a joint venture for, for most of that period. And then in two thousand and I guess uh fourteen, uh we moved out of the moved out of the Leg Mason building into our own into our own space. And um and then just just this year, uh, just last, I guess, yeah, just this year, we reached a deal like Mason and I, where I would buy them out and buy the, the now two funds that that are advised by LMM, buy that advisory firm out. So the two funds are the Leg Mason Opportunity Trust, right? Which you've been running since inception, since since, since inception, the beginning of two thousand, yeah. and it it had a so so two thousands, however. It's been on fire lately. Fair, fair way to describe it. Yeah, yeah. I would say I wouldn't say so. So two thousand had a very bad two thousand and seven and eight. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a, it was one of the best performing funds in two thousand nine. It was the single best performing fund of all funds in two thousand thirteen. I mean, two thousand and twelve, and then right. the, the the best performing fund of all funds above fifty million two thousand thirteen. And there's about a billion billion a billion three in that domestic version of it. And, so, pr- and so, probably probably the most unusual thing about it which will never happen again, yeah. is uh, if you open the New York Times special section on mutual funds of two weeks ago, uh-huh. you'll see that the Opportunity Trust was the single best performing fund of all domestic funds in the third quarter, and then the single best performing fund of all domestic funds for the last five years. And that will probably never happen again. So here's what here are the numbers I'm showing. It beat the S&P 500 by 200 basis points on average the- every year for the past five years. Yeah, uh-huh. and, that's probably uh, right, yeah, and, at least, yeah. And over, I want to say, seven years, it beat 96% of its peers. And what you're now telling me is for the trailing five years, it was the top, it beat all of its peers. Yes, correct. So, and, and that quarter probably had something to do with that. So tell us about your um, co-managers. Who else runs the funds with you? I, I do that fund with Samantha McLemore, mm-hmm. uh, who has been with us 15 years. She started out as an analyst and moved up to being an assistant manager, and now she's co-manager of the Opportunity Fund. And then we have an income fund uh, called the Miller Income uh, Fund, and it will it's it's run by my son and I. So we. I was going to say some that. guy named Bill Miller runs that one also. Yeah, yeah. Bill my, Miller the fourth. My son and uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And and tell us about the income opportunity fund. What is that focus? Yeah, it's that's a really interesting product. We started it. We actually we started it internally uh, in two in uh, what was it two uh, thousand and nine. Mm-hmm. We wanted to do it as a joint venture with the Leg Mason's Western Asset Management subsidiary, but we couldn't get the product people to approve it because it was it was uh, designed to deliver high income as opposed to being a bond fund or an equity right. income fund. It just could go anywhere in the world to get high income, and so th- it was hard for them to come up with a with a uh, with a benchmark, and finally, after five years of results, they said, "Okay, the record's good enough that we sh- we should launch it anyway," <laughs> which we did. Uh, so, what it, the, the objective here is very simply high income, giving you income higher than the than the high yield index, with the possibility of also preserving capital, the opportunity for capital gains. So, so the current yield mm-hmm. current yield on it right now is around seven and a half to eight after expenses. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Bill Miller. He is uh, a legend in the world of investing, not only uh, for the greatest S&P beating streak of all time, but for his legendary 
stock picking. Let's talk a little bit about the current um, environment and and how things are are operating. I want to I want to give a give you a quote of yours and have you respond to it. You you recently said stocks are stupidly cheap, but bonds are ridiculously overpriced. Discuss. Well, stocks are stupidly cheap relative to bonds. Okay, uh, that's, that's that's my view. I, I believe that the taking bonds first. You know, we, we hit a level over the summer where, where where bond yields globally had never been this low in the 5,000 years of history that we have about bond yields. Mm-hmm. So they're the most expensive they've ever been in history because of the, out, uh, uh, the aftermath of the financial crisis and slow growth and all of the stuff that we read about, read about every day. And even if you go back a year ago, right? So a year ago, the 10-year Treasury yielded over 2% to like 2.15%, mm-hmm. and now it's 175. So again, this year, bonds have beaten have beaten stocks. And so what you have now is a situation where stocks yield more than bonds. And the median the median PE ratio in the S&P 500 is about 17 and a half, which is above the long-term historic median, but but miles below where it theoretically ought to be if this is the right level of of bond yields. And so I think one of the things, and we have a partnership that we're just just getting underway, and in that thing, I, I'm long portfo- I'm a longer portfolio of stocks against a short position in the in the long treasury. Longer portfolio stocks against short. Oh, so really, you're you're doing a full on pair trade, long long equity short. Yeah, bonds. I, I I think that uh, there's a, we had a 35 year bull market in bonds from 1981 till this summer. Mm-hmm. I think we hit a double bottom in bonds in 2012 at around 138, and then around 135. I think this this summer and mm-hmm. uh, rebounded sharply from both of those levels very quickly. And if you look at if you look at the the way the way that bonds have traded, the way the safe parts of the market have traded, so utilities, telecom, consumer staples since since the summer, mm-hmm. they've all begun to wobble. And so all of that tells me that this thirty five year bull market is probably over. We had a thirty five year bear market from nineteen forty six to nineteen eighty one, followed by a thirty five year bull market. So, so it's I time think, for the cycle to turn uh, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I think I think also we're in a secular bull market in stocks mm-hmm. that began in March of '09, and I think that lasts in, until, like all secular bull markets, stocks get too expensive. But they're not too expensive today. They're not anywhere near as expensive as they were in 1999 or in 1968 you know, or, or in 1987 in the summer, for that matter. All right. So you said a number of things that demand a, a, a follow-up question from okay. me. First, you mentioned the double bottom in bonds. Do you look at charts and how important are they to you? Yeah, I think charts uh, charts are a way for me of, of visualizing fundamentals, looking mm-hmm. at the supply and demand, you know, expressed graphically. Uh, I, I, I don't think that there's any 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 special magic to charts. The academics have studied studied this in a variety of ways and haven't found haven't found sustainable, uh, reproducible uh, a, a way algorithmically to use to use charts. But nonetheless, nonetheless, what they can they can help you visualize what's going on and what has happened. And again, it's a supply-demand thing mainly. Mm -hmm. And then the second question is, so the internal debate uh, we've been having about secular bull markets, some people define a secular bull market as starting from a higher high. So the argument has been made, if this is a secular bull market, it might not have began until 2013 when the S&P and the Dow broke out of that previous high, I guess 2007 high, and started making all new price all new price highs. 
And other people are just, well, you could take the trend and, and extrapolate it for what you want. Uh, do you do you even care about the definitions, or are you just looking at, hey, this is a something that could last an extended period of time? Uh, yeah, I, I, I the de- there's all kinds of different ways to kind of measure measure bull market episodes cyclically, secularly. I tend to I tend to think of a secular bull market as one that starts at very low valuation and starts at pessimism. Mm-hmm. So starts you know the end of one bear market, a, a bottom, and then the peak being when when you've reached a point where if you look out ten more years, you don't earn any rate return you're on a very low rate of return mm-hmm. so i think that's from that standpoint the the previous secular bull market was 1982 summer of 1982 sure. to the to the end of 1999 or the spring of 2000 where you had roughly 17 percent a year from the bottom to the top and it's important at least the way i tend to think about it to understand that a secular bull market like that encompassed the crash of 1987 encompassed recessions encompassed declines in the market just because the market goes down or, or you have a recession doesn't mean that the bull market is is over i mean the economic cycle might be changing but but mm-hmm. the bull market is over when you can no longer earn a decent rate of return by owning that that uh, owning equities so uh, 82 to 2000 was defined in large part by a fairly continually expanding pe multiple it looked like investors were willing to pay more and more for each dollar of earnings are we seeing anything remotely like that here and theoretically how long can something like that go for uh, I, I again, different people have different views on this. My, my view is is emphatically no. We are not seeing that. We did. We had obviously very cheap stocks in in the spring of two thousand. The S and P was six hundred. But briefly, it felt like stocks were cheap for ten minutes, and then suddenly they looked expensive again. Well, again, because the market leads the economy, so the mm-hmm. stocks went up before the earnings the, the earnings came came through. But w- right now, in the overall marketplace, if if this is the right level for ten year Treasuries, one seventy five or so. Mm-hmm. And and two and a half is the right level for thirty year treasuries. Then the right level for stocks is is not seventeen and a half. It's probably thirty or thirty five times. Really. So I think I think that the market right now is already discounting a rise in the ten year probably to three or four percent over the next several years. So putting it differently, I think you can have the ten year get cut in half in the sense of double the yield on it right. without that harming stocks. So let let's put that into a little broader context. We get a December increase. What, what does that bring us up to 50 basis points? Maybe, it's yeah. kind of hard to say, wow, that's a, a heck of a tightening. And then theoretically, they do a, a quarter four times next year and four times in 2018, and we're still only at 2.5%. You're, you're essentially saying that shouldn't derail an equity market rally Stocks can continue to grow despite that move. I would be very surprised if they did four and four. I think you're looking at. I think you're probably looking at two and two, mm-hmm. as opposed to four and four. If they did four and four, it would only be because the economy was growing rapidly, much right. more rapidly than they then, think it is. In it which is case, now. earnings would be higher. That mm-hmm. you know. So, I think that uh, the 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 greater. So that's ri- the optimistic. The, the great the greater risk is that they is that they you know tighten too soon mm-hmm. into a fragile economy. And again, I don't see how they do four unless the rest of the world is also starting to grow right. as well because the dollar would would would, so, would come. So under. let's say. Let's say a quarter point in December, and then two and seventeen, and two and eighteen, and two and nineteen, and two and twenty, which would mean that we would have a low inflation environment, a GDP two percent, something along those lines, Maybe and the slower. rest of the world coming along, no nothing. That almost 
to quote my friend Larry Kudlow, that's a Goldilocks scenario, isn't it? If you have low I mean, inflation and low growth. If, then- if, if you look at it right now, so it's astonishing to me that you have th- this year, again, people pulling money out of equity funds at the fastest rate since 2008 when the world was falling right. apart. And you, you have that when if you were just to sit back and abstractly say, what's the best environment to own stocks? You'd say, oh, well, you want to have economic growth, but mm-hmm. it can't be too fast to stoke inflation or to cause the Fed to get hostile. Uh, we'd, we have to have low inflation, so we're not, PE ratios can be high. Uh, we want a good beginning dividend yield and a good dividend growth rate. Uh, we want GDP to be at an all-time high. We want household net worth to be at an all-time high. We want profit margins to be at an all-time high. All that's true. And yet, and yet valuations right now are, are nowhere near the historic highs. So- it's the political season. We're, we're having this conversation um, before uh, the election. Given everything you've described sounds so good, why is there so much negativity about everything, about the country, about our policies, about stocks, about bonds? It seems you can't go anywhere without this drumbeat of negativity, despite what you're describing as things actually being pretty good. Yeah, I think I think that... that- 2008, the financial crisis and the housing collapse mm-hmm. kind of changed the psychological polarity of, of, of people with respect to savings and investment and made them, uh, I'd say, both risk and volatility phobic. Mm-hmm. And so they're terrified of risk, and especially if they saw their house drop 35% in, you know, from peak to trough, and that we had an unemployment rate that, that hit 10% at one, at one point. And then there's just the general anxiety and angst that you see whenever macro pops up. I mean, the stock market had the worst worst start to its uh, to a year in history this year, mm-hmm. just because people got worried about oil, about Russia, about China. So these fears flare up, and I think they're they're due to the financial crisis, and it's only going it's just going to take time. We've been speaking with Bill Miller, formerly chairman and chief investment officer at Leg Mason Asset Management. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue talking about all things. Uh, value investing. Be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. We love your comments and feedback. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not global research that helps you harness disruption. Voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce Fenner and Smith Incorporated. Welcome to the podcast portion. Bill, thank you so much for doing this. I'm, I'm very pleased to meet you and I'm really enjoying uh, this conversation. Thanks, Barry. And I've been a big fan of your writings for a long time. So it's great to meet you too. Um, I don't even know what to say to that. I'm, I'm, I'm struck dumb by that. Uh, there, there are a few questions I didn't get to in the radio portion and I want to circle back before we start doing our um, our favorite questions. And and there's a bunch of different things that I know uh, you you can sink your teeth into. Um, so let's jump into some of these before we we come back. God, there's so much stuff. So so at the peak, what were the the total assets you were running at Leg Mason? Was they were that, north of seventy five billion. Was is that? 2000 or 07? That would have been 07, probably. And and basically, you're buying all big caps. You didn't feel ever constrained by, gee, there's only so much we could do with, with this money. It's too much money now. 
in the in the early days, we we did all caps. So again, we mm-hmm. had almost no money under management. We started with zero under management, so we could do anything. This is 1982 when right. I think I think the first portfolio that we put together in the summer of 1982 had a seven and a half percent dividend yield and traded at four times earnings and a discount to tangible book. Um, at the peak, we were mainly large cap. But again, because we're we're contrarian value investors, mm-hmm. we, we were liquidity providers when people wanted out of something. Basically, so the the the, the the size of the of it didn't didn't matter too much. It didn't affect us too much, and it's uh, my friend Will Danoff, another guy who's beat the market over his entire career, runs the Fidelity Contra Fund. It's the biggest active actively managed fund, and he's got a great record with a hundred billion dollars in assets. So it's doesn't make know, yeah. doesn't make that much of a difference. How, so l- let's talk about how you got to um, Leg Mason. What were you doing before you were running running the? Value Opportunity Trust. I was a I was a very young treasurer at a privately held company called J. E. Baker, which sold refractories to the steel and cement industry. Mm-hmm. And I got to Leg Mason because my wife was a broker at Leg Mason. So she had when I when when I we got married uh, overseas when I was in the army, mm-hmm. and then I went back to I went to Baltimore. I went back to Baltimore to go to grad school at, at Johns Hopkins. And so when I was in grad school, she got a job at Leg Mason, and then uh, that's how I got to know the people there. And what was your first gig there? What were you What were you doing for them? I, I came I came in uh, to succeed my my now late partner Ernie Keeney as director of research. Mm-hmm. So when I was the, when I was a treasurer, I was doing normal treasury functions, bank relations, and all. But the Baker Company had a fairly significant stock portfolio that they managed internally, which I which I did as well. And it was that that uh, that I think caught the attention of of the people at Leg Mason and some of the people that I that she knew there. So this is the first I'm hearing of this. This is interesting. So you're working at a company selling refractions to heavy industry, but sort of as part of your job, you're managing their own internal portfolio. Was that for their pension? Yeah, or? yeah part, part of the pension was managed outside, mm-hmm. and so we had a pension committee that you know, evaluated managers, and then part of it was managed internally. What was your What was your academic background that you had any sort of skill set and that you're in your early 30s then at that point, right? I, then I was, yeah, when I got to like Mason, I was 31 years old, yeah. Oh, so... You were in your twenties, running part of the pension fund. Yes. What What was your your background? What was your schooling? Well, I, I had an undergraduate degree in, in economics and European intellectual history from Washington mm-hmm. and Lee in Virginia, and then uh, I went to grad school at Hopkins in the PhD program in philosophy. And between that, I was in the military, military intelligence overseas. Oh, really? But I've been I've been interested in in, in stocks uh, since I was since I was very young. In fact, it's a it's, it's it's an amusing story that it, that uh, people have written about. So they, people say, "How did you get interested in stocks? What when did that happen?" And it happened when I was nine years old, mm-hmm. and I was living in Miami at the time. And I came in uh, from mowing the grass, and my dad was reading the newspaper, and he had turned to the stock pages, which of course don't look like the sports section or the the comic section, right? right? It's just numbers and letters. And I said, "What's that?" And he said, "Well, these are stocks." I said, "What are stocks?" And he said, "Well, they're they're parts of a business." I said, "Why why are you looking at this?" And he said, "Well, he said, you know, you can you, you can make money uh, if you if you know how to pick stocks." And I said, well, "What do you mean? Show me what this means." So he he takes something. I'll just make up a thing. Say say General Motors. I just, so he says, "There's GM. That's the car company that makes Chevy and Buick." And I'm like, "Okay." And he and I said, "What are those other things?" Well, that's the price. There's the opening price of the stock and, and the closing price. And and uh, and I said, "What's the thing at the end?" And it's like plus one quarter. He said, "Well, that's the change." And I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "Well, that's that a quarter. That's twenty five cents." And he said, so if you owned the stock the day before, you made 25 cents. And that, I, I said, well, what do you have to do to make it make money? And he said, 
what do you mean? I said, what do you have to do? How do you make it make money for you? He said, well, you don't have to do anything. It just does it by itself. And I said, wait a minute, there's, there's a thing where you can make money without doing any work? <laughs> and he said, yes, uh, sort of. And I said, well, that's what I want to know about because I don't like to do work, but I do want to make money. And so, and that's how I got interested in, in, in stocks at that, you know, at that point in time. And there was a book, which is probably still out there, that Merrill Lynch was giving away called How to Buy Stocks by Lewis Engel. Uh-huh. And it was, it was in order to familiarize people with the, uh, you know, with the stock market. And it told the story of some little kid that started a fishing pole company and that didn't, it was kind of a you know parable about stock buying, and since you know since then I've always been just interested in stocks. What was the first stock you remember buying? The one the first I remember buying was RCA uh-huh. uh, in the nineteen sixties. Oh, so you're a kid then? Yeah, yeah. I was I was uh, I, I bought RCA with the money that I had made by having a paper route and mm-hmm. umpiring baseball games and doing stuff like that. And uh, RCA stock doubled, and I used that money then to buy a car, first car, when I was like 17 years old. It's a Triumph TR4. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's interesting. So there's a tremendous history of interest in the market, but still you're, you're working for a non-financial company. How did you start managing their pension fund that sounds like you were 28 or 26? You were running their part of their pension fund. Yeah, I mean, I, initially I was uh, I was I worked for the CEO directly for a couple of years mm-hmm. and did a variety of different oversaw a variety of different things, and then I was also that named the assistant treasurer, and the treasurer was the one got much older than me. He was, uh, but he was the one running the running the portfolio, and I was helping him with that, you know, doing research and doing stuff like that, and then he left for for another job. And the, the job was vacant. And so, again, I was very young. And they're like, well, you, you, you can be the interim treasurer, and right. we'll go find a treasurer. And after, after about six months, they didn't find one, so they just let me do the job. That, that's amazing. You know, the other thing that stands out that you had referenced um, was military intelligence. We've spoken to a number of people who have had military experience. How did that affect your approach to investing. The U.S. military is a very specific organization with its very own way of doing things. Uh, directly on investing, it's, it's, there's a really interesting connection that's probably only because of the military intelligence training. Mm-hmm. And that is, uh, you, you know, the, in the, with the SEC, no, nobody wants you to have inside information, information other people don't have. But, but you can have what they call a mosaic approach where you put pieces of information together and right. figure something out. And we had extensive training in, in military intelligence in that exact thing, which is taking disparate bit, bits of information and using them to create, in essence, a picture, probabilistic picture of what might be going on and what could happen, and looking at various scenarios. All of that is directly applicable to, of course, to looking at, at companies and looking at the information and trying to get a, a picture of what's going to happen with those businesses in the economy. From from just apparently unrelated bits and pieces information about the companies. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it's really interesting because, you, you know, there's – you know, they have these old cliches that they would have on the bulletin boards of loose lips sink ships, you know, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And it's it's true because you could look at you could look at something that apparently was meaningless and have a little bit of information, but then there was something over here and something over here that were unrelated on their own, but you could put them together and get get the beginning of a picture when each individual piece by itself didn't tell you anything. And it's the same approach with picking stocks. Very similar. Yeah, very similar. Huh. So I want to throw another quote at you from yourself. I often remind and get get your feedback on it. You you had said, I often remind our analysts that 100% of the information you have about a company represents the past, and 100% of a stock's valuation 
depends on the future. So explain that. So this, uh, I'll come at that two different ways. One of them was that one uh, from roughly 1980, well, 1989 and 1990, we had two bad years in the value trust. And I took over at the end of 1990 solely managing the fund. And part of what I did then was I went back and looked at the history of value investing and the academic research on value investing. And, uh, and it became clear to me that a lot of what people thought about value investing wasn't supported by the evidence, and that when I looked at our own mistakes, they were, they were generally speaking uh, caused by putting too much emphasis on past data and past valuation stuff and past growth rates, and not enough on the future and not enough on what companies could do. Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, that, that, that got to that point of where I, where I came up with that, with that, particular, that particular quote. And we, and we changed our approach at that point in time to put a lot more emphasis on a company's ability to earn above its cost of capital, to generate free cash flow, and to reinvest that uh, on a sustainable basis. So how do you go about pivoting? You, you have a, a, an approach that's been extremely successful. What makes you say, we're going to tweak this a little bit and, and change the way we're doing things despite the past track record? I, you know, I, I, I got that actually from uh, the late Sir John Templeton. Mm-hmm. Who was asked, you know, why he followed this value investing approach, and he said, um, "We don't follow it out of any any special reverence for that approach. We follow it because we keep looking at all different ways to do things, looking at ways to improve all the time, and it just so happens that this is the one that we found most effective." And so I think that was that. And I, I talked to him about this, you know, when he was alive, and that was one of the things that's that stayed with me is you're always looking to try and improve the process. So if it turns out that even for a brief period of time that that uh, that looking at charts tends to be correlated with significant stock price moves, fine. We'll then add that to the mix until it doesn't until it doesn't work anymore. So it's a, it's a process of really trying to continuously improve and and again yeah I think you had Mike Mobison sure uh, on here and and he was twice yeah he was yeah he was a great when he was working for us he was a great uh, teacher of of uh, of uh, security analysis to the to the analysts and always looking for ways to improve looking at the academic literature so so how do you prevent yourselves from oversalting the stew so to speak it becomes really easy to constantly you know I picture the old soundboards with all the knobs and everything. And you have all these different inputs. Here's valuation. Here's the Fed. Here's interest rate. Here's inflation. How do you prevent yourselves from playing too much? Because you could. There's always something to be tweaked. It's harder to do less than it is to, doing more. Seems to be easy. How, how do you prevent that natural tendency to want to play around the edges a little bit? It's it's a little bit like the Zen, like doing not doing, in the mm-hmm. sense of in the sense of. What we're trying to do is always, always think about how things could be improved, assess it. But we're, you know, we're long-term investors, and that's that's again, that's rare in this in this market. But you know, we owned we owned Fannie Mae for 15 years at at one point. So uh, it's the case that our average holding period is is three to five years. And and then so we're we're looking through the stock price fluctuations. We're trying to look through the noise, and we're always trying to filter out the, the signal from the noise. But the core part of the, the the core part of the process doesn't change, which is trying to figure out the intrinsic business value. All right, so let's talk a little bit about that because that I think is really fascinating. How does that process begin? How important are analysts bringing ideas to you, and how significant is the team approach that you you employ? Um. So all those things are all those things are important. We 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 get. I mean, I I tend to 
be a, be a high output idea generator, not in the sense of constantly putting new names in the portfolio, but in the sense of constantly looking at names. And after 35 years of doing this, you know, I have a fairly good, fairly good extensive experience with all kinds of different companies and, and industries. And, uh, you know, my son's been doing this for eight years and Samantha's been doing it for 15 years. We have a, we have a, a, a new young analyst and a more senior guy that we just brought on. So there's a, there's a mix where people are, are all looking for, for things that we think are mispriced on a, on a longer term on a longer term basis. All right, and your your co-manager um, at the Opportunity Trust Fund, whose name is, give me one sec, Samantha uh, McLemore? McLemore, yeah. McLemore. So, so how do you guys divide responsibilities for running that fr- fund? Uh, is having a co-manager challenging? Is it helpful? Is there a natural split of duties? How does that work? Uh, well, it's, it, it works. It works very well. We don't. We don't have a formal uh, uh, split of duties. We both are trying to pay attention to everything in the portfolio all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's in the office a lot more than I am because I split my time between Florida and Maryland and, and New York, and so she she will tend to take more meetings with with sell side analysts, take more meetings with with companies than than I would just because she's in the office office more. And then we're you know we're her office is right next to mine. And my son's is right next to hers, so it's it's it, when we're there, we're, we're we're talking all the time, and when we're not there, we're emailing back and forth or talking on the phone. So let's let's talk about the end of the run, which um, was uh, ninety one to oh five. What was so different about oh seven, oh eight, oh nine than than the prior sell offs like two thousand or eighty seven? What made this collapse different than any previous i mean the dot-com crash was pretty um brutal at least for that second what was qualitatively different different about the great recession this was up until that point in time the academic literature did not really distinguish between the types of financial crises and then how you deal with those crises Mm -hmm. and so what we got what i got wrong what we got wrong in that was i thought we had a pretty robust strategy for dealing with with financial uh, panics and upsets, and in fact, we went through a, an exercise where we said, "Let's let's make sure that the, we have a strategy for dealing with anything that happened in the post-war period since World War II. Mm-hmm. So, high inflation, Watergate, you know, v- wars, panics, all that kind of stuff, inverted yield curves, and so that's and that's why we did pretty well for for many many years. This particular crisis was different because it was an asset-based crisis and not a liquidity-based crisis. And most financial crises are liquidity-based in that the Fed will raise interest rates, so the discount rate goes up, you know, the savings rate goes up, companies cut back, you have a recession, then the Fed comes through the other way. Even the crash of 1987, same thing, which was that you, when the market crashed, you had interest rates that got to 10% in October, and mm-hmm. you had a 2%. Two and a half percent yield on the market, and that just sucked all the money right out of the stock market. And but when the when it crashed, the Fed cut rates dramatically, liquidity went in, and the and the market came back, and the economy came back. In this case, it was an asset based crisis, so basically housing housing related, mm-hmm. and housing is the most people's largest asset. It's the asset that secures most of the debt, and a lot of that debt was was uh, undocumented loans, liars' loans, and stuff like that. So when that that edifice came down, what we thought was when the Fed began to really inject liquidity, you could go back, you could go back in again. And as it turns out, that's correct in a liquidity-based crisis. It's not correct in an asset-based crisis. An asset-based crisis, similar to what we saw in Japan, and what we saw certainly in the U.S. Uh, in 2008 
is is you only go in in that when the authorities get together and try and stabilize asset prices. So that was TARP. That's what TARP. Up until mm-hmm. TARP, every time there was a problem, the bank failed, the shareholders were wiped out, and TARP came in and it stabilized the the asset values of the banks and therefore the banking system. And that was that was the bottom. O- October was the bottom when most stocks made their bottom. When most asset prices made their bottom. The, the the final bottom was made in March, but that was more technical bottom. You, you had an October 08 bottom and then a uh, March 09, uh, and they, that was another but there were, classic there were, there were, there were no There were no significant failures after TARP, and that was when that was what allowed the system to stabilize. As late as January of, of, of 2009, people were still talking about nationalizing the right. the banks, but nothing ever nothing ever came of it. So you're, you have your own internal process. How do you as a as a fund manager, how do you come to the conclusion? Hey, we're on the wrong side of the trade here. How do you recognize the error, and how do you adjust your process to to reflect the new information? A lot of people have a real hard time making that that pivot. Oh, I think I think that's a very difficult thing because when you're when you're doing poorly relative to the market, then the question is always is is the market wrong or am I wrong? Mm-hmm. And I, that's a very difficult thing to answer because the the future isn't knowable to anybody, and the market is a co- sort of a collective intelligence collective intelligence machine. So it's it's easier to do at the individual stock level because, and to give you a, a good example, um, if if you take uh, 2011 for example, we had a very bad year in 2011, and people thought it was going to be another 2008, then the year was gonna, they thought the year was going to come apart, which would have been a, a catastrophe. So, it, but in 2008. If we looked at the individual names in our portfolio, 2007 and 2008, generally speaking, they were not meeting our expectations in terms of fundamentals. They would miss a quarter here, a quarter there. The stock would sell off. We're like, well, okay, it's been marked to market on that. But there was this sort of a continual slippage of, of what we expected the fundamentals to be. And in 2011, there was no slippage at all. The companies continued to do really well, even if the stocks weren't doing well. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a big one for us. Then second is it just when you go in, when we go in on a name, one of the things that we ask ourselves once we've decided to buy it is what will make us wrong? So trying to decide up in advance how strong is the investment case and when will we know that we're wrong. And, and one of the things that we have learned over the years is you don't let the stock price tell you if you're wrong. The stock price might tell you something is going to go wrong, mm-hmm. but the stock price by itself doesn't, doesn't contain any information, uh, especially in this environment where, where 70% of the stuff is algorithmic, where prices are being marked against each other every day. So that raises another question. How does, how does HFT high-frequency trading, how does that impact you when you're either looking at stocks to select or making the decision to hold on to them? Um, it doesn't make much difference to us because we're longer-term investors. I think there's a real issue of the front-running and the and the stuff that can affect shorter-term uh, shorter traders. To us, the, the, the market structural change, which is um, – uh, mostly, mostly just a reaction to the crisis is the layers of risk management and the ways, way people manage risk. That's what's making the market, I think, much more difficult and problematic. And, and the reason for that is that now that everybody is so risk phobic and people are, 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 when they see drawdowns, they run and run and sell. But what, you know, at, at Lake Mason, we had since the crisis three additional layers of risk management that were added to the overall firm. 
And what, what all risk managers want to know is what's your risk mitigation strategy. And they don't ask what your risk mitigation strategy is if you're outperforming or the, or the market's going up. It's only when you're underperforming or the market's going down. So what that does is it bifurcates the notion of risk, right, to only focus on stuff that's going down. And as, I, as I've said many times, I've never, read a, never met a risk manager anywhere in the world that believes you should own more of an asset that's falling in price. You should be selling an asset that's falling in price because it's risky. But you iterate that across the entire market, and uh-huh. what happens is that stocks get, go down a lot more than they would otherwise do so because at each different level, there are people who are selling just because it hits a threshold, down 5%, so down it's 10%. The, uh, the new regulatory um, scheme that we see at companies is a modern version of portfolio insurance? Yes, that that doesn't make any sense. If you, I'm not I'm not arguing with you. I'm saying, from a aren't aren't returns generated by reasonably embracing risk? Isn't isn't performance the flip side of of assuming some risk? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think you know when people talk about volatility and and, and they're worried about risk, you, know, when you put your money all in cash. It just it'll just sit there and look at you. It won't do anything. <laughs> right. So my my colleague Samantha uh, is fond of saying that volatility is the price you pay for performance, and I think that's. That makes sense. Uh, you know, I, th- I think that's right. Volatility is the price you pay for performance. So there are s- lots of giant firms now. You have Vanguard and BlackRock and State Street and firms that are managing in the PIMCO and uh, firms that are managing in the in the trillions. Do they all have? Do you? Im- I guess you. I'm asking if you imagine they all have the same sort of of layer of risk. Uh, management and and is that going to affect everybody's ability to produce asset management that can rationally embrace risk? Well, I'm not I'm not familiar with the details of all of their strategies. You know, many of those firms that you mentioned are are, are passive. Much much of many of their assets are passive. Right. Vanguard right? is two four trillion two thirds of it is passive. Yeah, now. and BlackRock's got the ETFs and, and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But 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 from the I'll just say from the people that I know in the industry in the business at big firms, every one of them tells the same story about about risk and about having to have risk mitigation strategies. And I think that's part of what you're seeing in the overall you're seeing in the overall market. Huh, that's quite fascinating. What what else is different? Uh, one of the questions I didn't get to before. I've heard numerous people blame or credit, if you want. Um, this rally is all driven by the Fed. It's low interest rates. Nothing else is is driving this market. H- how accurate is that assessment? I think it's reasonably accurate as it relates to bonds globally. And but it's, they're, it's they're not, talking equities. Well, I think it's I think it's much less accurate with respect to ex- equities. And so, just just for example. Um, if, if it were all just low interest rates that's driving the rally, right? What's the most interest-sensitive part of the economy? Housing. How's housing done? Uh, well, housing is housing stocks have been underperforming, and the housing market itself is half, half of what it was in 2005 in terms of new home deliveries. Right. So that hasn't been, you would expect that would be you know, blowing the doors off if it was just interest rates. How much, how much have interest rates helped uh, Amazon, for example? None. Google, none. Facebook, none. Those are among the largest companies in the overall right. market. How have interest rates helped uh, J.P. Morgan and Bank of America? No, they hurt them. So there's, it's a much more complex situation than just the, the stocks are marked, are marked up. And as I said, I believe the market's already discounting three to four percent ten-year rates. Mm-hmm. I think, I think, it, it will. And see that's five years or so off in the future. Probably, yeah. But I, I, the thing I think is more interestingly possible is that the only time that we saw money going into uh, stocks 
was in 2013 during mm-hmm. the so-called taper tantrum. Right. When yields went from 160 to 320 in four months or five months. And that's the only time that money's gone out of bond funds and into stocks because people were losing money in bonds for the right. first time. And now it's, money's gone back into bonds. So what did the market do that year? It was up 30%. Because money flowed into stocks, not out of stocks. And I think that I think that's a potential that most people aren't focused on, which is if we have a bear market in bonds, and it doesn't have bonds go from 175 to 225, right? When people start losing money and that goes into stocks, the stock market could go up, you know, 20, 30% easily. Huh. That's quite fascinating. Um, I, I've been hearing stories of cash on the sidelines now for 20 years, and I, I've always ignored it because. How, how could there be cash on the sidelines? If I'm buying a stock from you, you're giving cash to me, and if I sell a stock to you, and vice versa, it's there's always some amount of cash ready to to be deployed. That that that's really fascinating. The uh, the the bond side of things. Um, so you you've owned a lot of financial stocks. You mentioned just now J.P. Morgan and others affected by the um, by the Federal Reserve. What was it like heading into the financial crisis, sitting in financial stocks? What was the analysis then? Was there a sort of sense, hey, these are really inexpensive and we want to own more? Or was the sense more along the lines of, we're not really sure how this plays out. This is sort of uncharted territory. Um, it was it was more the latter because what, what we did as the as the the economy and the market got worse is we moved up the, the what we thought we were doing is moving up the quality spectrum mm-hmm. and buying the larger and stronger financials um, as it turned out you know so we bought AIG which was at one point a triple A rated company the, but then the best insurer in the world yeah so and that and that you know effectively disappeared during that right. uh, during that point in time um, so I, I think from our standpoint what what we the, the big the big break for us in that in that financial crisis was uh, when the when the government took over Fannie and Freddie that Sunday mm-hmm. uh, in September, and uh, my personal view is that people when people say well Le- the letting Lehman Brothers go was the mistake that caused the cascade of you know then the breaking the buck and the credit markets coming unhinged, and my personal view is or my the question I ask people to say it is well why did Lehman Brothers fail in September? Bear Stearns failed in March. Right, and, and nothing happened from March till September. Then Lehman failed, and to me the answer is, Lehman failed because Fannie and Freddie were seized the week before, and they were seized even though the, all their capital requirement met all the statutory capital requirements. And they were seized preemptively, and I came in that Monday morning and I said, if the government is going to seize and wipe out the shareholders preemptively, not when the company runs into liquidity trouble like Bear Stearns did, then we can't own any financials. We have to get out of every financial, which we did. And I think people who had their just looked at the same thing. Who's the most levered next to Fannie and Freddie? Lehman. Let's right. get let's let's get out of that one. And then who's the most levered after that? Merrill Lynch. Wham-o. So, it's so all you liquidated following the Fannie and Freddie. Um, what, that was late August or early, early September. Early September, like September seventh. It, it was a week before uh, Lehman. Uh, Lehman blew up. Um, so that had to save a ton of capital if you were liquidating on the eighth. It must have felt bad at that day, but you look what happened a few months later. We actually got we actually got back in after TARP, mm-hmm. so we weren't out for that long. And we what really what really helped was when the government the government came in with TARP 
And again, we, we shouldn't have gone in as quickly, as quickly after that as we did. Sure. But in January... You had a nice bounce after that, that in, October, November. Yeah. In January, what happened when they talked about, when they were talking about um, nationalizing the banks, the, the, the preferred stock of Citibank, Bank America, Wells Fargo... Was trading it was trading it like fifty cents on the dollar when it was pari passu with the government's right. Money. So we bought those preferreds at the time, and then what happened was that the government caused those preferreds to be converted into common stock at roughly par. So we, you know, our I think our cost on our Citibank was like seventy cents a share and stuff. So we, we that was part of the reason we did so well in two thousand and nine was those things took off like a rocket. Hmm, that's fascinating. You know, my view of Lehman Brothers has always been. It was merely the first trailer in the park when the tornado came in. And as long as there was so much financial paper written on, based on mortgages and home prices were dropping, yeah. hey, the whole dominoes were going to fall. It didn't matter which one was, was which. I, I don't know how much of that is um, philosophically appealing, but I've always, I've always liked that metaphor. A lot of people blame Lehman on the rest of the crisis, but it looked like everything was going down no matter no matter what it was as long as home yeah. prices were were in free fall. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. So, I know I only have you for a finite amount of time. Let's jump into my favorite questions, the standard questions I like to ask all my guests. You you had told us about um your background and what you did before Leg Mason. Tell us about some of your early mentors. Who who were the people who influenced your professional development? I would say because because I, I got interested in stocks at a fairly a fairly young age and I read a lot on stocks, but I'd say that the the stuff that influenced me the most was probably Adam Smith's The Money Game, which mm -hmm. came out in 1968 or 1969. Sure. Um, uh, the 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 follow on to that, uh, you know, Super Money, where actually he uh, he introduced the world to Warren Buffett. So I started reading about reading about Buffett. Read Ben Graham at the time. Uh, reminiscences of a stock operator uh, is something that up until a couple of years ago I read it. I read it every year because it's such a great. Really? It's such a great um, lesson in psychology and and um, and how psychology works through the market, how markets how markets behave. So those were those were some more. You know, uh, my my partner Ernie Keeney, who died in 2010 at the age of 92, uh, was I worked with him worked with him every day for however many years that was. Uh, uh, 20 plus, you know, 20 plus, 25 plus years. So he was a big influence on me. And the major influence that he had was he was probably the most optimistic person, uh, I, certainly the most optimistic I've ever met. And and so no matter what, no matter how terrible things looked, he would say, well, they'll get better. Things, things will turn up. You know, everything's going to be okay. And he was also extremely patient as an investor, um, you know, owning, just own stocks for forever. And uh, and was a, was a deep value kind of a, Guy and in fact he got to Leg Mason. He came to Leg Mason, and and headed up the research effort there after he'd spent his career at the telephone company. And he the reason he got to Leg Mason, which is a very small firm at the time, he came in 1968, the, uh, was because that his personal account was just was so uh, had gone up so much, and the broker that was dealing with him said, you know, this guy this guy is you know uh, he's, he's uh, this guy's in his uh, 60s. You know, and he's going to retire from the telephone company, and we need to get him here because this guy can really pick stocks. And that's how. And he came and joined the firm. Really? Yeah. After retiring from that, the telephone. That's company. That's amazing. Any yeah. any other mentors you want to men mention? Well, s certainly. I mean, people that you know, I've, I've I've tried to get to know and pay attention to the all the prominent value investors. So certainly, certainly Warren Buffett, John Templeton have been big influences mm -hmm. on on how I think about things. 
Um, and you mentioned a few books. You mentioned uh, Money Game and Super Money and Reminiscence of a Stock Operator. What other books um, are some of your favorites? Be it finance, not finance, fiction, nonfiction. What what do, what do you read? Well, I I I, I kind of read. Um, uh, uh, I, I read very widely. Let's just say it's okay. And and so I'm always reading stuff that that is. People are kind of surprised to I just spent surprised fif- to hear about. I just spent fifteen minutes talking to Bill McNabb about science fiction. Yeah. So don't be afraid to go outside of you know reminiscence. What what else? Well, to- so oh, so well, I'll, I'll just kind of rattle off stuff. And, sure. And, and, so if I stay in the business thing, uh, the in the in the in the market or business realm, um, Fortune's Formula by Bill Poundstone uh-huh. is a great read because it's a it, what it is. It's about it's about Claude Shannon, the guy who, who created information theory. And J.L. Kelly, who came up with the Kelly Criterion, which is how, how you allocate assets in a, you know in any type of an environment. And um, but 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 Shannon made a fortune in the stock market, mm-hmm. and that book points out the, the differences between standard financial theory and the type of the type of theory and behavior that Kelly and, and Shannon Shannon use. And it's just a great intellectual great intellectual read. Uh, I, two books that things that have influenced my thinking greatly: um, William James. Pragmatism, 1907. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's the most important document in in American intellectual history. Really, um, I think. And uh, his his other book, one of his other books called the Varieties of Religious Experience, also very interesting. Uh, interesting book, Mind and Cosmos, is a recent book by Tom Nagel, a philosopher. Okay. Um, and the in the in the again, I went to grad school in philosophy, so Hume's Treatise of Human Nature is is. Hume, Kant, uh, you know, they're they're all. I'm I'm reading Schopenhauer right now. The two volumes of the World is Will and Representation. Mm-hmm. Um, some stuff that I'm reading right now. I'm just about done with the brand new biography of Douglas MacArthur. There's a new one of Ulysses S. Grant that just came out. That'll who be who wrote next. the MacArthur uh, book? Uh, I'm drawing a blank on it right now. Um, not H. W. Brand. If it's if it's new, it's, I'll it's, be. Oh, it's, it's brand new. It's an it's an 800 page, uh, 800 page book. All right. And it's good. It's it's very good. I've read I've read Manchester's book on MacArthur and uh, but this is this is this is good. Um, let's let's see. I, I've uh, this year uh, trying to you know, I was trying to read some classics. So I read Robinson Crusoe and Frankenstein. <laughs> no kidding. I'm reading uh, the, the 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 book that came out that a lot of people read. Obama's recommended it. Uh, Sapiens. By Yuval Harari. Uh, uh, that, Danny Kahneman recommended that book. I've ha- I've had a number of people come out. I, I started it not too long ago. It, uh, are you enjoying it? Well, I I, I finished that, but I, yeah. he has a new book out. I'm, yes, it's not. It's called uh, Homo Deus. Yes, and I'm about halfway through that, and it's How really that? It, it's great. It's great. Really? really, yeah. I'm I'm trying to pull up the um, I'm trying to pull up the the MacArthur book, but. Uh, this, you look on Amazon. Just look on Amazon. MacArthur uh, bio. Yeah, watch um, McCall. is not cooperating. Uh, this is Explorer, and it doesn't want to uh, remotely cooperate. Or right, I'll I'll, I'll you, dig it up. Yeah, you mentioned you mentioned science fiction, which I I don't read a lot of, but I, I actually have just started Olaf Stapleton's book Star Maker, which is a famous book in the science fiction pantheon. Star. He was a philosopher by training who wrote um what he didn't even regard as science fiction just called it you know speculative speculative fiction mm-hmm. so that's that, that but that's a that's that's a, a book that's gotten a, 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 had an exceptional influence on other science fiction writers and i haven't you know i haven't read it so 
that that's quite a run of books you've gone through. It sounds like you're you're quite the reader. Yeah, I, that's I spend a lot of time reading. I wish I spent as much time as Mr. Buffett does, who says it's all he does all day is read. But <laughs> I have to I have other things to do. So to say the least. So what do you we we talked about some changes in the industry. What do you see as the next round of changes? Uh, what what is the next thing to impact? I think, I, th I think we're about halfway through the secular change in the industry uh, away from active management and away from um, so the traditional mutual fund industry, which is under great secular pressure, both from e ETFs as well as from uh, from passive. And I think passive is right now about 30, you know, 30 to 40 percent mm -hmm. of the of the industry. I think that probably goes to 70. That uh, much. Yeah. That over high. time. And wow. then, so and then that's so that's I think we're so we're half probably halfway through that. I think we're just at the beginning of a massive hedge, hedge fund shakeout to where the, the fee structure in hedge funds is, it just makes no sense whatsoever in a low nominal rate of return world. I mean, having a, having a fee structure in, a, in an, equity, an equity hedge fund of roughly equal to the 10-year treasury just makes no sense whatsoever. And if you're going to make 5% a year in stocks, which we think is a reasonable number, then having that level of fees and then taking 20% of any profits takes almost all the profit, unless you have a hurdle rate in there, and gives it to the manager, which, again, doesn't make any sense. How much of the move from active to passive is being driven by a similar fee pressure? Well, it's it's it, it's uh, a is lot. Is it performance? Is it it's, fees? It's, is it's it... a lot. It's a lot less because the fees are lower compared to hedge funds. Mm -hmm. But but again, people have thought for some reason, rather in a mental accounting mistake, that somehow the hedge funds were magical and they deserve these higher higher fees. I think the problem in active to passive is twofold. Number one, fees. Jack Bogle has said and that's mm -hmm. that's money directly that doesn't belong to the customer anymore. And but second and and more importantly, I I think it's it's closet indexing. And closet indexing is driven by you know a combination of risk management, and and also uh, 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 fear of tracking error. So you know people people can take some underperformance. I remember having a conversation with John Reed when he was running Citibank. I think it was probably nineteen, I want to say late nineteen eighties or something like mm -hmm. that. Early no early nineteen nineties I guess it was. And and he said to me, and we were an owner of Citibank at the time, and he said to me, you know, he said you have a very tough job because you have to actually beat the market. Uh, if you don't beat the market for some period of time, people take all your assets away. And he said, on, on our side, on our side of the business, he said, in terms of managing people's money, he said, all we have to do is not look bad. He mm -hmm. said, so we don't really have to beat it as long as we don't underperform by too much. Because he, he said, it's a different mindset that people, different people's mindset have with money being run by a bank versus being run by a mutual fund company. But I, I think that the closet indexing, an academic told me that by, by his count, over 70% of active managers aren't really that active. They're pretty much closet indexers. So it's all career risk. They're afraid of sticking the neck out. And so yeah. they're charging fees, but essentially running an index with a few changes around the edges. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, that, and that can't, in the aggregate, that can't work. So that's. Is that the largest source of money that's moving from active to passive? It's moving away from the closet indexers to the true no, indexers. No, it's, no, it's it's moving away from. I mean, we're we're getting redeemed this year. We're not we're not having a great year. But after five years of the number one fund, you would think that we'd be getting a lot of inflows. We're not, right? Right. Uh, my friend Will Danoff, who runs the Contra Fund, right? He's got a twenty-five year record of being the market outflows every day. Chris Davis, same thing. Mason Hawkins, same thing. So I think the, I think it's a shift from active. 
just in general. And so mm-hmm. it's not so much that people don't know that of all the managers I just mentioned, all of them have a record of beating the market over long periods of time. So it's not that people don't believe that they can't beat the market. It's people don't want the market the, – they don't want the drawdown and the risk that, that comes with anybody who's truly an active manager. Huh. That, that's quite fascinating. That's, that's very insightful. Um, so what do you do to relax outside of the office? Uh, well, reading is relaxing for me. Okay, that, uh, that's a good start. I have I have a bulldog that always so an English bulldog, so mm-hmm. he's always a source of amusement. And then you know it's a psychologically, you know, patting the dog is relaxing. <laughs> uh, but that you know that's I, I it's one of those things where where I'm, I'm lucky that I'm lucky that uh, that the market is both a hobby and a and a and a, and a profession. And so I, you know, I I spend a lot of time just you know reading about economics, markets, that that sort of thing. Okay, that makes perfect sense. Um, so the last two questions, these, these are my favorite two. I ask this of, of all of our guests. If, if you had a millennial or a recent college graduate come to you and say, Mr. Miller, I'm interested in, in becoming a fund manager, what sort of advice uh, would you give them? Well, the first thing I'd start asking some questions like, "Why do you want to be a? What? Why do you want to do this? What's your? How is your interest stoked in this?" Uh, it's the people that I've found that have been the best at this have tended to be people that have been interested from a young age. Not probably not surprisingly, Tiger Woods, you know, started golfing at age two. So the younger you you, you start, I think, the better off you're likely to be. Um, I, I agree mostly with Charlie Munger. I always, I always ask people, you know, what they're reading. Whether it be markets-related stuff or, or or Charlie Charlie says that he's never met a great investor who wasn't a great reader. Um, I'd say that's that's mostly accurate in, in in my experience. Then then in terms of what I tell him is that the, one of the things you really want to do is just you invest. So you, do you invest right now? What do you what do you do with even if you have a small amount of money? What do you do with it? I started investing twenty five bucks a month when I was in the army as a lieutenant in the in the Templeton funds. And I'd you know read the quarterlies, and I'd ask. I'd also ask if they want to be a fund manager. Which fund managers do you admire, and why? Um, questions like that. So, and in terms of advice, it's um, you know it's a tough business to get into. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it, having a having a business school degree uh, from a from a, a good business school has pluses and minuses. But one of the pluses is you're you're more likely to get a job in in finance with with that. But again, I don't have that, and a lot of other a lot of other people that I, I know don't have that. Um, but just getting into a, a a money management firm. So if you can get a job anywhere at like Mason or T Rowe Price or Fidelity or one of the, that, I think is the key. Once you're inside, then your ability to maneuver and to make friends and to figure out where you can go is much greater than it is trying to have your your nose pressed against the window. And our final question: What is it that you know about value investing today? that you wish you knew 30-plus years ago when you first started? Well, I, I'd, I'd say I'd bring it a little bit more up to up to the, the current, and I'll answer that in two ways. Uh, you know, I wish when I'd started that I had had a better understanding of how value, how value is created by businesses. I had a good understanding of how people in the stock market have invested and done that kind of stuff. But really understanding, I'd say, the, the, the economics of various businesses in, in a way that Buffett seems to have a natural uh, tendency to do. Um, I think I've developed that over the years, but it would have been nice to have it if I was, I was 25 or 30. Uh, second thing would be, the, the, I mean, the big thing, the big changer 
uh, for me would have had to understand the difference between an asset-based crisis and a liquidity-based crisis. Mm-hmm. So if we have a, if we have, if, and there, those are the only two possible kind of crises that there are, except for you know world wars and stuff like that. Uh, and so uh, if, had I had that understanding uh, that I have today as a result of reading the academic literature and the work of people like John Johnicopoulos at Yale, for example, or Gary Gordon at Yale, uh, I think I think we'd have done really well coming through that 08. So if we if we if we have 08 type thing again, which I don't think we're going to have, it's probably once in a generation, but I think we'd be able to deal with it, and that would have made a big difference. Thank you so much, Bill Miller, for being so generous with your time. We've been speaking with Bill Miller. He is the former CIO and chairman of Leg Mason Asset Management, soon to be running LMM and the same funds he's been running uh, so successfully over the past few years. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you can see the other 100-plus of these conversations that we've had. We enjoy your comments and feedbacks. Comments and feedback, not plural. Uh, Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I if I I'm going to say that again. I would be remiss if I did not thank uh, Taylor Riggs, our producer, Charlie Vollmer, our engineer, and Mike Batnick, our head of research, uh, who helped put together all the questions for today's show. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption. Voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce Fenner & Smith Incorporated.